following podcast contains coarse language and strong opinions on wine. Seriously, these two have potty mouths and little self-control. Listeners, you've been warned. Live from our basement studios in suburban Chicago, it's another edition of That Wine Pod. I'm Pete, and sitting across from me, the nurturer of Napa, Vino Mike. Hello, everybody. How we doing out there? We're da- back down in the bowels of the we, house. We are. We got <laughs> back back down into our hole. <laughs> it fits 2020. <laughs> it, it just does. fits the theme. It does. How you been, man? I know it's been a couple weeks. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been, uh, you know, both of us have had some busy schedules, uh, got knee deep into the remote learning Ooh. and everything going on, going on in the in dad's world here. Uh, but uh, doing good, doing good. I got to say, our um, I, I really didn't think this was going to happen. When they started the school year off, it started off 100% remote. Right. And before the year started, they sent out some surveys like, are you for going back in? Are you for a hybrid model? Whatever. And, you know, we kind of deliberated, but, you know, we, we, we wanted to, we were behind a hybrid model, knowing that the district and the school would make sure that it was a safe environment. Sure. They'd be or, vigilant with masks yeah, and things like that. Yeah. Right? Because I mean, you know, nobody, everyone wants to remain safe, right. Or, or the best, take all the precautions I hope, I hope so. that you can. And, um, so they started remote and I, I was like, all right, well, that's it. We're not going to like go hybrid in the middle of this school year and especially going into the fall. And here we are, it's, um, the early October and Monday we're recording this on a Monday and it's the beginning of the week and they began a hybrid session at the school. So, you know, we're, we're on board with that. They released some data. It's your classic 80, 20. So it's 80% hybrid. 80% 80% of the students yep. are going into the schools. 20% are doing 100% remote. And uh, it's for four days a week. So they're doing a little Wednesday. Everybody goes remote and it gives them an opportunity to clean the school or something. But And your half day, the other four. And the other day, uh, the other four days are half days. So morning time only. It's about like a, a two and a half, maybe three hour session. Uh, they get a what's called a mask break. So there's not recess. They're not allowing the kids to share the playground equipment or anything like that. Hmm. But it is a step further, you know, a step closer towards more socialization for the kids and having them be around each other. And I, I think that coupled with like face to face instruction from the teachers is ultimately a lot better than the computer screens. Yeah, we're not back yet uh, for my youngest. The, my older two have been in school the entire time down in central Illinois okay. for half days, right? So they split the school in half, the high school, okay, because uh, they're older. And then I've got the kindergartner because, you know, who doesn't want to do that? And every every district is different, which is yep. wild. So what's what's the – this? Uh, they're in school down in central Illinois. Yep. Is Are they like five days a week, yep. half days? Or? Yep. Because I know, for example, the high school in our district is like an A-B schedule type thing where you go on like right. Monday, Wednesday, and then the other groups go on Tuesday, Thursday right. or something. But Yeah, there's all kinds of models out there, but theirs is just the straight up half a day, three hours basically a day. Gotcha, gotcha. That, so they've got the afternoon shift. And what they did was smart. Like they said, hey, okay, if you, if you don't live within walking distance of the school, and they define that as whatever the bus routes wouldn't normally run to or a mile or something like that or whatever it is, right? 
if you're closer to the school and you can walk or get there easier, you come in the afternoon. If you're further away, we'll get you in the morning and then we'll drop you back off mm-hmm. using buses, right? So now you've utilized your bus schedule really efficiently. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they've been in the whole time. The COVID cases have actually gone down precipitously over time with them. Mm-hmm. So there was a scare for my son. He was around somebody that tested positive. He had to quarantine for two weeks and, right. and do all that. And everything came out fine uh, for him and, and everybody's healthy and nobody else got it, thankfully. Uh, but if you look at their cases, they've actually gone down while in school. Mm. So I think they're being smart, especially in school. Like they're, they are no, it's basically no tolerance at that age, no tolerance for any kind of slip up with your mask. Yeah. Look, this isn't a political statement, but maybe the White House can look at what some of these schools are doing, for example, in central Illinois, Mm -hmm. because uh, obviously they're not bringing these kids in and having like everybody with no masks and all together in a room or all together outside or something like that. But uh, anyway, it's just, it's just good to know that, um, yeah, we just you know, want everybody everything was was he- everybody right. was healthy. Right. That. And that's what we want everywhere, right? Yeah. Like I think that we're all on the same page. It's yeah. not a political statement to say, "Hey, we want everybody healthy," <laughs> right? So that that's just the f- the fact. And then my youngest here, the they've had many contentious school board meetings, and I watched the full school board meeting for the first time this last one where they voted to finally go hybrid for my youngest who's in kindergarten, and they're going to do the Monday, Thursday for half the class, Tuesday, Friday for the other half the class, and then it's independent study else otherwise. Okay. And um, it, it, I mean, that's that's a lot on on parents, of course. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to figure out how to adjust a little bit while she doesn't. I mean, there's videos, but it's not the same, yeah. right? It's not that direct teaching uh, for those couple of days. So we'll have to adjust a little bit on how we're doing things. But in the end, I agree. It's it's good. The biggest the biggest thing was lunch. Like that's what everybody kept talking about. And so I, you know, I'm a data guy, yeah. right? Like I like data. I like to study data. I like to see what the data is telling me. And I get it. You can interpret it different ways. I, I got it, right? But we have data now. You have all these schools that have been going for some period of time, and you have daycares that have been in session this whole time, right? Eating lunch, little three and four, two, three, four-year-olds eating lunch Mm -hmm. in the building. How many COVID cases are happening there, right? Why aren't we looking as a society at this data a little bit deeper and starting to try to understand how this uh, spreads maybe um, a little bit better? I I really think that we're missing an opportunity to, to dive down into that. And the reason I bring that up is because it seemed to me that most of the board meeting was all on emotion. It seemed almost like a political stance or an emotional stance on what you wanted to see. And instead, I'm trying to drive my decisions for my children, right, based on everything that we know. Mm-hmm. And that means, you know, kind of digging down into some numbers and trying to understand it and then weighing risk. The fact is there's a risk every time you leave the house for a lot of things. For anything. Right. Exactly. Yes. So where are we with this? And not looking at those daycares, I think they're just missing low hanging fruit. Like in terms of good data, you know, so I could tell you that where she was at preschool before this daycare preschool, they've had zero cases. They never closed. So they've been open the entire time in one way or another at different capacity levels. They continue today at 80% capacity with zero COVID cases. That's pretty good, mm-hmm. right? So I'm I'm really 
I, I, to me, that's that's anecdotal because it's one center. I got it. But at least it's something to give me ease of mind as I think about, okay, my kid's going full day for those two days. So there is lunch involved. For you, that with the half day for Johnny, the lunch is somewhere else. It's right. not at the school. Right. But it is happening. But it is else. happening somewhere else. <laughs> so they oh. they they took away the snack time. They had a, yeah, a plan to have snack in the school, like outside. And they and I know this is a wine podcast, everybody. I know but, we're like ten and, minutes in, but and Pete's drinking it right now, and I, I actually tasted a little bit. We got a great bottle open here, but um, and thank goodness for wine because that's been definitely helping carry through <laughs> all of this nonsense. But. Anyway, they, they couldn't figure out how to get everybody to like, how would they figure out the logistics of getting everybody to wash their hands before snack and after snack without it taking half of the morning? Yeah. I, you know, and it's not a knock. Like these are, they're these just are looking at all these little things. And, right. um, but you know, you see, you know, it's really over the top aggressive and vigilant in one environment and then not so much in the other, but the results are kind of equal and you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to figure out like, right. You know, what is safe? What, what is the right thing to do? And I mean, you know, when you're presented with the option, it becomes a personal preference, but yeah, absolutely. So we, a couple just last things on this, cause we should probably move on to wine, but I think it's important for you guys out there that are, you know, to the, I don't know, 14, 15 people that listen, I think it's important that you understand like kind of where we're at yeah. and why sometimes this may not get recorded, and right? No doubt there are listeners in the same camp as us yeah. that have kids, school-age children, you right. know, so we know some, for right. sure. For sure. So for our school, they, you know, the two full days, there is lunch, there is no snack. They took that away, um, but it you can take your kid off campus because there's going to be recess too. So you, if you want to pick up your child, you can and take them off campus from 1130 to 1230, which boggles my mind. Right. Like logistically, how you keep track of that as a school, right. how that doesn't increase risk. Like, I just don't understand the, that's what I mean by emotion. To me, that was driven by emotion. Like, well, what if somebody doesn't want to have their kid at school eating? Well, then they should be remote. Right. You know, in, in my mind, right? right. Yeah. Well, let's give them the option to take them off campus. And now if you're a teacher, a principal, an administrator, you got to figure this out and who's doing what. I can't imagine that spreadsheet, man. That's one heck of a pivot table you got to make to encompass all of this stuff. And, you know, the, and we're going to do hybrid. We're going to give it a go. But one of her, you know, her close friends is not. Hmm. So, you know, she's going to be very disappointed when she goes and her little friend isn't there. Isn't but there. that's just, that's their decision. Like I, fully 100% support the decision to keep your kid 100% remote. And I was close to doing that because I, the only reason I'm not is because I need time to get some work done. Like I still do have consulting gigs and I need time to get that work done. And I've been struggling. So in order to get that, I'm, I, I'm going to take those kind of two days. And I think that the risk is low. It's not so much. I wanted to do that for risk. It was more about consistency Right. Like, well, man, in the end, kids are fucking resilient. Yeah, man. I wish adults were half as resilient as kids <laughs> are. What happens? It's amazing. <laughs> what happens to us once we get a little bit older, right? Where's all yeah. that go? Oh, all right, dude. So I, maybe we'll end the school talk here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, dive into a bottle. What do you say? Let's do it. Right on. Well, I, this comes out of my, my little cellar, if yeah. you will. Yeah, here. Let it's me, uh... the, uh, it's the 2016 Hill family estate 
Napa Valley Cabernet. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Napa today. Cab is king. Let's do it. Let's do it up, right? Perfect. And 2016 vintage. Mm-hmm. So it's got a couple of years, but man, this this wine is fresh and has a lot to it now, but I think it's got some time left to evolve. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we just popped it right before we started recording and just right on the first whiff and taste uh, just to check it out and make sure it was, uh, you know, good to go. It was just singing, man. It's like really jumping out of the glass. The fruit on this thing is gorgeous, like really nice, classic, new world, but Napa Valley Cabernet, like not sweet and jammy, but just ripe and perfumed. And I mean, it just, it smells like Napa. If you've ever, you know, if if, any, if you know what I'm talking about, you know, it just, you put your nose in there and it just smells like Napa. I would agree. So, and one of the things I like are, we oftentimes talk about smaller wineries, smaller estates, family owned, yeah. and that is what we have here. So you've got Doug and Darcy Hill, got to Napa in about 1981, set up on a little acre, eventually, you know, start uh, growing grapes and... They um, would provide fruit and vegetables to organic fruit and vegetables to neighboring restaurants, including the French Laundry. Oh, wow. So when Thomas Keller says that your fruit and vegetables are good enough for his restaurant, you know they're doing something right. (laughs) Yeah. So they did get uh, some vineyards in and were basically selling their grapes. So they were just selling to some top-end wineries. And then, uh, you know, you fast forward some time and why don't I make my own wine? I love it. You hear this similar story over and over, played over and over again. And uh, it's, it's kind of what grew, grew the Valley. Right. Right. You know, like the small mom and pop farms. Right. Well, and the story of kind of what they produce kind of tells the story of Napa a little bit and and is a throwback to some things that we've been talking about. So they start to bottle their own wine in 2001. The first wines that they bottle are a red blend called Origin. Now, this is a red blend, no doubt, is going to be in this because of the fact that this is the height of where red blends. This is right after Prisoner first comes out. So red blends are now on the meteoric rise, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to do a blend. And then they're also going to make a Merlot, not a Cabernet. Wow. So they start out with a Merlot and a red blend in 2001. If they only had a crystal ball to if, see the movie that was about to come out a few years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean. That is funny, though. We did it? touch on that, right? And again, you know, pre-sideways, I mean, Merlot was... The bomb. It was the shit. Like, it was like there were really, really good Merlots out there, and there was just no reason for it to go through what it had to go through. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're most definitely, it's a mass produced wine, and there's shitty examples too. But oh, sure. as a small estate making premium wine, making the best wine you can, it's just too bad that, like, you know, right. the cultural impact of that movie touches their wine right like yeah that that grape and so what happened you know like did they have to sort of make a shift there into cabernet or well they just kept growing i mean they still do make a merlot mm-hmm. uh, but they're not that definitely was not the focus they definitely shifted focus to cabernet over time they kept growing the amount of vineyards that they had and now they have about 120 acres of vineyards and they still sell grapes to top end wineries and then make 
make their own. Okay. One of the things I really like about this is it's family owned, it's family farmed, it's family produced. Awesome. This is a this is a family venture, mm-hmm. and who knows how much longer they could do it, but it's a hundred percent them and the family that that are kind of going at this, and now they're they're making like 12, 12 wines. Right on. Um. Well, wait, no, they're making more than 12. They have about 12 vineyard sites. I think they're making like 20 wines now. Okay. So. Even 12, that's that's a nice, you know, portfolio for a small family estate, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, it sounds like they've been around, you know, in the wine game here in Napa for about 40 years, 20 of which were farming, and then uh, the last 20 developing their, their brand. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I don't know how the... Uh, how the uh, economy, you know, the COVID, I don't know, you know, cause I know they were a big restaurant brand just because it's smaller production and overall. And so I know they did a lot in restaurants versus retail, but uh, you know, so I don't know how it's impacted them, but I could tell you that every time I, I taste one of their wines, I'm always blown away by how approachable they are from the get go while still maintaining this ageability, that, that backbone, that structure that I just think is phenomenal. Yeah, man. I don't know too much at all in the technical aspects of this wine, but it's this really beautiful uh, combination of that fruit I was talking about. And then this awesome, delicious, really well-layered spice quality that is just sitting on top like a blanket, obviously coming from some luxury oak barrel treatment. Again, I don't know if it's all 100% new for, you know, 18 months or whatever. It doesn't taste over-oaked. The oak is definitely not the the star of the show, but it's there. Um, It's a strong supporting, (laughs) in a strong supporting role here, and it could maybe win an Academy Award, but um, it it, absolutely makes the wine... so delicious complex and to me that's like classic napa where it walks this line of like ripeness and power but finesse and elegance you get a little like bit of the old world charm um, how they make the wines in bordeaux uh, with that spice quality Uh, a little bit of earthiness on this also just a touch you know like a little rocky earth a little bit of green not too much at all we get a little bit more green out of sonoma wines this again to me, more classic Napa with the fruit forward style. Um, but yeah. I gotta ask uh, if you know a s- small family estate. Do you know where they're located? Yeah, they're they're on like kind of the northern edge of Yountville, uh, okay. mostly. Okay. Yountville. Yeah. Uh, mostly, but they do have uh, vineyards on Atlas Peak, and I mean, like they're they've got a lot going on in terms of vineyard sites. And the I forgot the the last thing I wanted to bring up was that the winemaker is female. Oh, cool. It's right Alice, Al- Allison Duran okay. is, is the is the winemaker. So I really like the fact that we are sitting on, you know, this beautiful wine. It's, look, Napa Cabernet of this quality is not cheap, right? So, I mean, this release price was $55 a bottle, okay. which I don't think is that expensive for Napa Cab. I mean, it's expensive for a bottle of wine for most people. I got it. But for Napa Cabernet, this is pretty much where it sits. I mean, 50-ish on the retail shelf. Yeah, you would expect that. But what I'm always leery about is, all right, what am I getting for my 50 bucks? Correct. This is like I'm getting closer to, you know, like a $90 bottle. I, I would, I, I fully agree. You know, and 
that take all that with a grain of salt. You know, we don't have like a, a scientifically proven mathematical scale here that, you know, determines quality to price and all that. But just in our experience combined, all the wines we've tasted, yeah. all the wine we know, you know, um, you can be really disappointed with $50. Right. Or you can be like, damn, that is good. And this is as good as this other wine that you would pay 90 or 100 for. And I think this definitely flirts in that department. Like, this is a really elegant wine. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's it, like silky and smooth, but so much personality and charm to it. It's great. I, right. I, I would agree. The part that gets me is the fact that the fruit is definitely there, but it's those secondary and tertiary notes that yeah. are really making this wine give you that feel, right? And that's, uh, okay, we don't have a scientific method, but like you said, we've tasted thousands and thousands and thousands of wines in our, in our careers. Yeah. Thousands. I mean, between the two of us, like, well, I mean, I know I, so I used to keep a full spreadsheet of everything I tasted Mm -hmm. and I stopped when I got to 25,000. Right. So I've tasted a lot of wine, you know, in my lifetime. And I could tell you that this is, top end right so production on this is small it's under a thousand cases or just around a thousand cases you do get a decent amount of oak treatment on it it's about 22 months in oak and about 85 percent new okay yeah about 75 percent of that is french for the new oak and 10 percent is american but what a deft use of that new oak like it's not overwhelming or overpowering and the alcohol's up there it's flirting with 15 i think at 14.8 or something on the bottle uh, and it's about, it's a Bordeaux style blend, I will say. Okay. It's 80% Cabernet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven Malbec, five Merlot, four Petit Verdot. Nice. All, all that, right? Like that's all Bordeaux. And that, but then they throw in 4% Syrah. Oh, wow. And cool. I think that that's giving it a little bit of lift on the color mm-hmm. and the aromatics and kind of some of that spice tone we're seeing on the back. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's just a little bit, but you only need a little bit to get a lot. That's going right? to, yeah, a little goes a long way, especially with a grape like Syrah. What did we just have that was, um, no, not we. I was at an awesome wine sure, rub party. It in. Rub it in. <laughs> uh, I, I swear you were there, no? <laughs> no, I, I just, um, one of our listeners who I got to know over the years from the, the wine shop um, as a customer there, he had a little, uh, and when I say little, there was four of us outdoors in the backyard it was a sunday one of the neighbors had a projection screen the football was on like it was just awesome. fancy outdoor social distance the whole nine yards and there was about uh maybe half a dozen bottles of wine on the table over yonder and we were just kind of going back and forth and tasting stuff and um and uh yeah there was a um the creator Oh yeah. Um by uh by Kay, Kay Vintners, yeah, Charles, Charles, Charles Smith. Smith. Yeah. And that's a wine that I'm familiar with and that we sold, but it was hardly I don't even remember getting to taste it. Like these wines are typically small batch allocated. You don't necessarily have them open for tastings and things like that, or you're not sampling them up front sure. to see if you want to buy them for your store. Sure. Like, take it or leave it. 
And uh, that was a 70-30 Cabernet Syrah. And it's so good. Um, it was a 2012 vintage. And also on the table was a 2012 Gramercy Cellars Washington oh, nice. Cab. You guys are Washington and up over there. It was kind of a non-California cab or wine-themed party. There were some Pinots, actually. And it sort of graduated to the heavier style wines. Um, and, uh, oh, man, I'm going to absolutely freak out if i can't remember the third bottle it was also it was a 2012 um i think it was anvil oh nice anvil and uh it was it was a fun conversation to have about what we all thought of the wines and rank them and stuff like that they were all 2012 vintage but the creator for me and i think it was the consensus was the hands down favorite not cannot be labeled a cabernet because of all that syrah 30 percent but the Syrah and the Cab, just like, oh, man, did they go well together, especially yeah. with Charles Smith and that powerful, like, forward, concentrated style. Yeah. Um, and a little bit of age on the wine. Like, again, 2012, eight years for everything to calm down a little bit. Dude, it was really killer. It was like Northern Rhone meets, like, Washington Cab. And um, and I say Northern Rhone just because it, it just had this, like, nice meaty and real peppery quality to it. And it was just really complex. And that's the one you just kind of wanted to go back and pour a little bit more in yeah. your glass and have again, you know? So they were all great wines. Yeah, that very one was the most fun. And it's really cool to hear there's a little Syrah in this. Because, yeah. like, this is really tasty and delicious and that little bit four percent this was 30 percent, so it's in your face unmistakable like there's syrah in this right this well one, and plus the winemaking style is completely different with mm-hmm. with charles smith mm-hmm. right i mean it's much more opulent and plush, <laughs> loud. right it's it's big and loud just like he is his goes right? to 11 <laughs> his wine, his wine goes, goes to, to 11. 11 yeah versus the the hill which is much more on the elegant side and the it's kind of inviting you in to think whereas i feel like creator just like you just want to you, you want to shut down the brain and just enjoy it. This is almost more intellectual to me, yeah. right? Like if you look at it that way, the, and I remember that anvil really well, that f- made by Forgeron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that really well too. And thinking back when I tasted it, you know, years ago that it needed time. Uh, but what's interesting when I taste the creator, older vintages of creator, oftentimes I feel like, okay, I'm not sure how much more time they have at eight years. How where do you think did the creator have a lot more life left in it or was it kind of peaking? It, it, it was, yeah, it had a lot more life in it. Like I wouldn't say it was peaking, but it was like on its way up to the summit. It was awesome to drink right there, but no signs of like slowing down. And what's interesting is of course we needed another bottle as the night got a little later. Of course. And, uh, the host, uh, well, Mike D that's his name. Um, from the Beastie Boys. From the Beastie Boys? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. (laughs) He gets respect. (laughs) Cash in his jewelry, he expects. (laughs) Right. Uh, But he, you know, he went down and brought up another bottle and it was a, um, oh my gosh, I think it was a Katana. Oh, nice. um, Cabernet Malbec. So it was a really cool pick. Like he deliberately grabbed that because we had like the Cab Syrah and now we've, put it up against the cab Malbec. And, you know, I was just kind of having some fun joking around. I'm like, I would give the creator like minus five. And we had football <laughs> on, you know, so we were talking about betting and fantasy and all this stuff. And, and, um, uh, anyway, it was a fun little like if game. If these wines were coaches, the creator <laughs> would be Dicka. <laughs> yes. 
Um, but uh, anyway, that could be a fun segment or two, you know, like pair up a couple wines together and put some odds down and, uh, yeah. you know, like put them head to head. But it kind of was a cool comparison, like cab versus the power, like the, the king, like Malbec, Argentina, Catena versus Syrah, Charles Smith, Washington, both about equal with the Cabernet Sauvignon to support them. And, uh, you know, the Catena was awesome, but still the creator just did it. It was just in a really great spot. That was, that was the clear winner. Beautiful. So, yeah. Well, that sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. So anyway, yeah, yeah, a little little bit of Syrah on the Hill, though, goes a long way. Like, that's adding. And however long this episode is right now, we open this wine, like, maybe 10 minutes before starting. Five, Not even five, five minutes. Yeah. It's really starting to open up. Oh, yeah. But now I'm getting, like, a little, uh, I don't know if you are, but uh, the greenness, like, this fresh, almost eucalyptus. It's yep. not so pungent as eucalyptus, but just it has this, like, spearminty, reminds me a little bit of Australia, you know, like that down-under kind of mintiness that can come out of some of those Aussie Shirazes. Yep. I got that, too, for sure. And Maybe that's the Syrah just a little bit. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Just a, just a skosh, you know? It's really in the background. Like, again, the, the spice and the fruit is just so freaking beautiful and dominant on this wine, but... Yeah, I, I feel like there's been, like, a caramel note that's gotten released, too, um, on it. Just, like, a little bit. Release the Kraken. <laughs> yes. But anyway, dude, like, I wanted to break out this, and we talked about breaking this out. Uh, such a great wine, and if you have any questions about it, let me know. Uh, let Mike know again something we can steer you to to find very easily. Although it's not readily available, and doubtful that you're getting 2016, you're probably on the 17 at this point. But still, we we know the distributor of this wine very well too, and mm. and we'll we can we can help you you know find a, a good shop to go get it at. Yep. Uh, but anyway, we wanted to break out Napa because, dude, I really hope that one of these days we cannot think about fire and wine country. Yeah. I mean, we, we want to do this show and talk about wines and when there's some current news or something that we feel is interesting to talk about on the show, we want to do that. And it just needs to stop being this really like tragic news that is yeah. going on right now. I mean, we, we wanted to, you know, give an ode to Oregon, which we did. And of course, there were cal there were, there are fires from like Mexico to Canada right now, basically. So California was going through some fires during the time, but it at the time we recorded the Oregon episode, it wasn't impacting wine country as m nearly as much as what this glass fire is yeah, doing in yeah. less than a week in, yeah. in the past few days. And um, it's hard to ignore. I, you know, I can't even, I can't even imagine what the people of California and right now we're talking about wine country, but what they're, what they're going through. I mean, last I read, it's like just Napa County was like over 150 single family homes destroyed, mm. you know, like I can't, I can't even begin to imagine. And I, and you know, I don't want this to focus on any like the vineyards or, or the wineries or the wine business necessarily, you know, the impact is like, it's so much deeper than than that. Well, but if you think about it, so the the glass fire is definitely just I mean it's really devastating the area. Yeah. And when I saw that um the famed uh restaurant at Meadowwood yeah. burned to the ground, it hit me emotionally because Have you given? Well, the best meal of my life. I mean, I've been, so I've been to Alinea you know, I I ate it at uh, Grace. I ate at French Laundry. 
trotters multiple times. The best meal of my life was when Gretchen um, and our friends Jen and Boone, when we were at restaurant at Meadowood. It's it. It was the other three star Michelin. So everybody kind of knows French Laundry. Yeah. But the restaurant at Meadowood was also three Michelin stars. The single greatest meal of my life. The single greatest bite of my life. Wow. I can remember it like it was yesterday. This sphere of clam chowder that they put down in front of you. And it was just like a croquette. And I'm like, okay, well, this will be a nice kind of a mousse or something to kind of get you going. The explosion of flavor when you bit into that sphere it's haunting me still like in terms of like, I don't think it could ever get replicated. It was that good. The wine pairings were exquisite. And, and the first thing that I thought about, of course, was that meal. But then my mind immediately goes to, oh no, all those people that were waitstaff and dishwashers and busboys and runners and chefs and sous chefs and uh, prep cooks and the people who provided the vegetables and the people who worked the fields to provide those vegetables and the wines and the people who worked the fields to like that. If you think about the cascading effect, like I get what you're saying about, I don't want to concentrate on the vineyards or the restaurants, but the fact is yeah. that is a mic like that impact. Even if your house didn't burn, you may not have a job now because of the cascading effect of something as iconic as that going burning to the ground. Yeah. And it's sad in so many levels. Uh, and it's, I don't know, you know, like. That's my, what I mean. Like I saw a couple posts on social and you see a couple of the comments and someone's like, oh my gosh, what about their wine cellar? I don't know how that can, like, yes, of course, you know, there's all these great collectible bottles that, you know, were lost. But there's going to be more wine, you know, like. Sure, sure. Like, to think about the staff, to think about just what the passion, what, what they were doing there. And, you know, like, yeah, they'll hopefully rebuild. Will it be Meadowood again? Will it be a new restaurant? Who knows? I mean, same thing with the pandemic, the way other restaurants have had been forced to just close, you know, will new places pop up in their place, you know, sure. But will it be the same owners? Will it be something new? Uh, you know, who knows? Nobody knows yet. Yeah. And, um, just the fact of how fast and furious this fire has invaded this area. I mean, a few days ago I was watching um, like a local San Francisco news channel. And at the time, this this is like maybe three days ago, the fire was 2% contained. 2%. Like that's like zero to me. Like let's talk about it's 98% not contained. Like that's crazy. Yeah. And they were showing the evacuation zones and it was between Highway 29 and the Silverado Trail from Whitehall Lane to Larkmead Avenue. Wow. And you're like, that's like the valley. Right. That's right. You know, and this is like the latest evacuation zone, not to mention what has already happened in the northern parts with Calistoga right. and uh, St. Helena Um and of course, Sonoma is being impacted terribly as well. We kind of wanted to, you know, just talk Napa today, but um, yeah, we're just using it as the vehicle, just yeah. in general, though. Yeah. I mean, because the, the glass fire now, I think, is about thirty percent contained. Yeah, but it, you're, you're talking about sixty-six thousand acres. Yeah, destroyed. I mean, I was on That's... the verge of swelling up, like watching the news report about this stuff, seriously. And it just autom like, oh, shit, I need to have a lot more gratitude day to day in my own life and get back into that. Because 
it remind like I feel like I'm Michael Scott living my cushy nerf life up here <laughs> in the office, not risking it. Not risking your biscuit. Sorry. <laughs> Dwight, you ignorant slut. <laughs> um, but, you know, that one episode, you know, about the uh, warehouse and the office uh, oh, versus God. the people that work up in the office. But, you know, um, really, it's like the the amount of risk. You, you talk, we're, we're talking about, like, you know, sending our kids to school with COVID risk. I mean, you're, you're you know. <laughs> houses are burning down businesses are burning down um complete like lives are just com- yeah being completely uh, turned turned right. up and right i know. mean well the bread and butter of of napa is tourism right and wine yeah and, and and restaurants and resorts are a big deal yeah and that's who employs people right so first of all you got to worry about your home so if you're in calistoga i know the entire population of calistoga was evacuated um the calistoga ranch burned down I mean, that's a five-star, fa- very famous five-star resort. Mm. Um, the people that are now, if their homes survive, they might not have jobs, right? So it's just insult to injury. Now, and where do they go? We've got COVID. Where do these? Where does everybody go? Where do they stay? They've got to get. I, I just, it really is like heartbreaking to to think about. And I could, I found myself gravitating towards drinking more California wine, yeah, and Oregon wine recently than ever. Um, and a little bit, even Washington has been impacted a little bit, not as much. Um, but mostly Oregon and California, just because I want to support like what I got to go buy more of that wine then. Right. Um, I want to support them. It was awesome to witness a couple acts of unity and empathy and compassion where I've seen some winemakers like in Oregon sending out, posting on social that, Hey, Cali winemakers, do you need a place to store your barrels or your inventory. We have room for you up here in our wineries, like truck your stuff up. We'll house it for you. We'll figure it out. Like there, that's just, that's just awesome. Like they're, you know, we're all in this together kind of a thing. And, you know, to see that unity and, and, um, yeah, I know? saw, I saw one report where the reporter said, you know, we, we asked, uh, the owner and I can't remember honestly what it was, right. Mm-hmm. Like which, which winery they were talking to, but we asked them, you know, what do you, how does this impact the 2020 vintage? Mm -hmm. And, um, the, she just said the owner responded, the winery owner responded, let's worry about that next month. (laughs) Like, let's get through this. We'll figure it out. We've, but I think you're going to see more than ever people band together in that area because they're going to need each other's help. There are crops destroyed barrels are destroyed smoke taint might just wipe out most of it if it wasn't high up in the mountains honestly if it's Mm -hmm. not mountain fruit you might not be getting wine um from this vintage which again goes towards how do people make a living so let's get them to survive first let's hopefully make sure that their homes are safe to the best of their ability and then they can worry about that next phase right but needing a job is just kind of part of life. And so you've got to look at the whole when, when you're looking at this and it's just, it's devastating. I mean, so, you know, we could talk about the nuances and love of Napa um, and Napa is special. Like you can be snooty about it if you want um, or like counterculture if you want, like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't go to Napa or I don't drink Napa. Have at it. You're missing it because Napa's wines are that fucking good. Yeah. Without and, a doubt, man. We were we were there for our honeymoon. Um great great time. Uh so many great memories. Um 
it's a really special place and there's a reason why it makes such incredible wine like it is just a very very special place for the way that it's shaped the way that it works with the climate the way you have the mountain appellations on both sides and the valley floor um it it's just awesome and that's why i was asking you a little bit about where hill family estate was because this i'm not surprised to hear you say it would have been more baller if i called it before learning but this silkiness and softness of this wine that's like valley fruit floor yeah um and when you drink something that's like Spring Mountain or Howell Mountain, like O'Shaughnessy, one of your favorites, that's where you're getting much more rugged, powerful, more tannic, probably needs more time. And like if we drank a 2016 O'Shaughnessy next to the 2016 Teeth Hill Ripper. family, like it's going to feel like the Hill family is 10 or 12 years old and the O'Shaughnessy is like three years old, right. even though they'd be from the same vintage, right? And that's the awesomeness of Napa and how it's not it's not ubiquitous at all it's not napa cabernet i mean it really they have whatever it is now up to 17 18 19 subzones and new ones have been being created um day in and day out over the you know the last like about 40 years i think it was right around when hill family got started that they started these sub avas with howell mountain maybe it was 83 i believe and um you know they just haven't haven't stopped uh, from that point. You got like Coombsville now, right? It's a newer one. And um, all these just little micro pockets that the wines grow differently there. And not to mention every grape in the world, basically. Right, right, <laughs> right, can, right. You know, there's Albarino from Napa Valley. There's Cabernet, of course. There's, uh, you know, just name it and it's pretty much there. You know, there's Nebbiolo. I think of one place we went um, on our honeymoon was Altamura. Oh, yeah. Great Cabernets. But um, their passion is Italian, and they make like fucking Negro Amaro and Nebbiolo and Barbera and all, like you're like what the fuck? And the story, you know, unfortunately, I think it's Bob Altamira, if I remember correctly. I don't think he was there that day. And you know, the woman that was like talking with us and tasting with us was just telling us how he loves bringing that shit to blind tastings with all the other big shot winemakers that he hangs out with. We need to get some of that. Blind for, for, taste we, that. Need, we need to blind taste Paolo on some of this stuff. Hell yeah. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be really fun for sure. We're coming after you, Bevuma. So Negro Amaro from Napa. Hey, Valley, he might want to start uh, bringing it in, right? <laughs> oh man. That was awesome. We were actually, that was an 11 a.m. appointment and we were super fucking hungover because it was our, <laughs> our, the day before was our first night. We went on the Napa Valley wine train. Oh, nice. Awesome, awesome thing to That's do at cool. least once. Like, yeah, it's touristy, but it was an awesome experience. Um, they have a great wine shop before you get on the train. So you don't have to drink the wine that they have. You can kind of BYOB on the tea. And, dude, they had an 03, this is 2011, they had an 03 um, uh, Robert Craig Howell Mountain Cabernet. Oh, yum. For like 60 bucks or $65, something like that. So we bought that, drank it on the train, and right across from us was another couple on their honeymoon that would might as well have been the same age as us. So when we all got done and got dropped off in Napo, of course, we went out to keep keep the party rolling and having a good time, and we're all on our honeymoon, and... Next thing you know, we're having beers and shots and not <laughs> not the greatest. You know, we just have to walk back to the hotel also. So nobody has to, like, think about being responsible. Right. And it, it just got, like, 
it was a lot of fun, but way overboard. And the next morning, time to go, time to go to Altamira, honey, and taste some Cabernet. Uh, in the meantime, we're not trying to like, you know, try not to throw up all over the place and, you know, just really bad hangover. But we rallied and we got there and hair of the dog, man. There was nothing like some Altamira Negro Amaro to help yeah. steer the ship and get us back on Perfect. track for the rest of the day. But <laughs> so cool, though, like to get to Altamira, too, you have to go over the mountains to the east and then down into through the, the other side, through the woods to to grandmother's house. Exactly. It was like following the yellow brick road. And man. Um, you definitely got a nice prize at the end of that, but they were just in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah, man. they are. And yeah. they're like, yeah, go walk the vineyards. Just watch out for rattlesnakes. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think you bring up a really good point and that's how we'll kind of bring this full circle and, and wrap it up. Cool. But the, there are so many zones because there's so many microclimates and so many different styles that you are going to get up and down Napa Valley, mm-hmm. depending on if you're higher elevation, if you're North, if you're South. So, I mean, like Calistoga is going to be complete, completely different than Howl Mountain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or Mount Veeder or Spring Mountain or what, you know, one of those, right? And it's amazing. And so getting something like the Hill wine, this Hill family wine, they're blending that mountain fruit with um, like Baker Vineyard and Atlas Peak, which are, I don't know, a thousand to 1500 feet, I'm going to say okay. up with Valley floor fruit from things like um, Boterre. And Flat Rock, uh, what's the other one? Windy Flats um, is another vineyard they use. So you've got all these uh, different styles kind of blended into the wine, too, to give you this prize at 55 or less dollars. I, I think it, it's probably about 50 usually on the shelf, yeah, give or take. Sure. Um, so, I mean, you get so much bang for the buck because of that sourcing, the deft winemaking, and, and letting each area kind of shine within the bottle and you can get it like you get that power from the mountain right and you get that elegance from the valley floor and that fruit forwardness that defines california new world wines yet all this complexity which to me you relate to more old world, yeah. you know, yeah. to Bordeaux and, and to, to classic wine. I was just thinking that while you're saying it too. And like, you know, you talk about what's your desert Island wine and oh Barolo, but man, I love, love fucking Napa yeah, so I do too. much. And it's that complexity of the fruit sourcing that you're talking about that when you dive into the, like when you remove, pull the curtain aside of like, how are they making this stuff? When you just see Hill family estate, Napa Valley Cabernet on the shelf, it just, it looks like any other bottle of wine, but it's not the case. And they don't have the cachet of Barolo on the label or something, or Brunello de Montalcino. Um, So you really got to kind of dive deep, but that's what makes learning about Napa so fascinating and what, why these wines can be so damn good. Just so damn good. And this one is, so thanks for... Thanks for pulling this one yeah. out of the of the D'Amico uh, caves. Yeah, well, we're gonna have some steak uh, tomorrow night, so I Ooh. thought we'd open it today and and oh, drink yeah. drink the bulk of it tomorrow with perfect our, with some steaks. So beautiful, it's gonna be beautiful. Well, I mean, you know, it's cachet to say, but honestly, like thoughts and prayers with Napa right now. I mean, to the listener, like hey, if you can pick up a few bottles next time you're out, like it all trickles trickles back and. They definitely need some support right now from uh, from everybody uh, to help help get through this. Um, I did see 
as the like the latest it's 26 percent contained and the weather is looking a little more favor favorable going into this week so just hoping hoping for the best and they can minimize what's already very damaging yeah absolutely and and if you've got a few extra bucks to spare into one of the funds that's been created to to help people in that area definitely go check that out too so all right, man. Well, I think we'll enjoy a couple more sips of this. Yeah, and, sounds great. And wrap it up. <laughs> Sound good to you? All right, man. All right. Well, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that life definitely is short. So drink what you like tonight. Thank you for listening to That Wine Pod. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at, at That Wine Pod. And we are That Wine Podcast on Facebook. Also, check out Mike on Instagram at Vino Mike. And Pete is at Fat Man Stories. Please subscribe to That Wine Pod on your favorite podcast app and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. The music is Proto Funk by Kevin McLeod. That Wine Pod is a production of Paragon Media. (laughs) 